Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. This is a rebroadcast of an episode from our Let's Talk ID podcast series. In this episode, IDSA President Dr. Dan McQuillan, IDSA President-elect Dr. Carlos Del Rio, and John Bridgeland, co-founder and CEO of the COVID Collaborative, discuss the impact misinformation is having on the COVID-19 pandemic. This is Dr. Dan McQuillan, the president of the Infectious Disease Society of America. And today we're going to focus on uh, misinformation as it applies to the COVID pandemic. The United States has made important strides in the fight against COVID-19 in recent weeks with the authorization of COVID vaccines for children ages five to 11 and boosters for all adults. But despite this progress, still less than 60% of the eligible population has been fully vaccinated against COVID. Fueling this COVID vaccine hesitancy has been a tide of misinformation about the virus, vaccines, treatments, and the government's role in all of this, among other things. IDSA has been working on many fronts to combat misinformation throughout our media outreach, social media platforms, and our COVID-19 real-time learning network, but much more remains to be done, of course. Today, I'm pleased to have with us two leaders in the fight against COVID who will share their thoughts on this important topic. First, John Bridgeland, the co-founder and CEO of the COVID Collaborative, of which IDSA is a member, and our own IDSA president-elect, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. So welcome, gentlemen. First, I'm gonna ask John Bridgeland a couple of questions. Bridge, can you tell us a little bit about the COVID Collaborative and what it has been doing to address misinformation about COVID vaccines and treatments? Sure, so thank you, Dan, and thanks to IDSA for uh, being such a a compelling partner of the COVID Collaborative and grounding our efforts in science and evidence. So when a pandemic meets our system of federalism with 55 states and inhabited territories, 3,000 counties, 31,000 zip codes, you actually need an all-country response to inform the decisions of what, 330 million Americans and their institutions, schools, workplaces, other places where Americans are gathering. And so a year and a half ago, at a time when there wasn't a national plan, we formed the COVID Collaborative to bring together top leaders, experts, and institutions like IDSA, like Carlos Del Rio, who's one of our favorite members in health, but also leaders in institutions representing uh, education, the economy, and the diversity of our country to support a whole country response. Because this isn't just a public health issue, we also have to look at it in terms of its effects on children in schools, our economy, our civil society, and our society and country as a whole. In terms of addressing gaps in misinformation and providing good science-based information, we actually began by listening to various populations to understand their level of knowledge, their view of things, who they trusted, who they didn't, Uh, what information they were desperate for. And uh, with the Ed Council and the COVID Collaborative, we launched a $250 million vaccination education campaign informed by good research 
to provide good information, facts, answers to tough questions through credible, trusted messengers. Starting with the medical community, whose surveys showed are our most trusted messengers. And we also partnered with others who represented significant reach throughout the country from businesses, schools, faith-based institutions, to sports leagues, country music, former presidents and first ladies, and even Pope Francis <laughs> to expand uh, our effort and reach. We have a get the facts portion of our website that sophisticated people like you all and Carlos Del Rio and the CDC and others have informed that provides answers to questions and combats misinformation. And finally, in the states with lower vaccination rates, we actually have a strong on-the-ground campaign to get good information through trusted messengers in the hands of parents, schools, businesses, faith-based groups, and others. And have worked with governors and mayors and other leaders on a bipartisan basis. That actually leads to my next question. And that one very important aspect of the collaborative is that it's bipartisan. And that's really critical since COVID has unfortunately become so politicized uh, over the pandemic. How uh, has the collaborative worked across that political divide? Facts and good evidence should have a way of penetrating through the political divisions. They don't always, unfortunately. But in everything we've done, we've been adherent to science and evidence and also being truthful with the American people and her institutions about things we, we do not know yet to build trust and credibility. We also took a Noah's Ark approach every step of the way. Our co-chairs are a former Republican governor and senator from Idaho, very conservative state, and former Democratic governor uh, and presidential candidate for Massachusetts, uh, Deval Patrick with Dirk Kempthorne. When we saw masking become unnecessarily political in its manifestations, we tap Presidents Bush, Obama, Clinton and Carter and the First Ladies to send a message of national unity around vaccinations. And we even got uh, help get President Trump on Fox News to send a strong message to his base as an outgrowth of Operation Warp Speed that he should feel proud of. That uh, And he said, vaccines are a beautiful thing. You should, you should get vaccinated. <laughs> so we've really, we also have engaged former officials, all the U.S. Surgeon Generals, FDA commissioners, CDC directors, some dating back to the Reagan administration, engaged governors across the political aisle to embrace a common plan of action. Not everybody did, but many of them did. And then fr- finally, we've, we've got into the heart of the political divide. When some Republicans were nonchalant or even hostile to masking and vaccination, we brought in Republican Governor Chris Christie, who had attended a, the, what is now called a White House super spreader event, didn't wear a mask, got COVID, spent seven days in the ICU, lost two members of his family. He had a story to tell, and it brought a reality and credibility on the right side of the aisle to this issue. So we deployed him all across the country through PSAs uh, to share his story and insights. And so we've tried to be politically mindful in deploying people and faith-based leaders and others who can reach large swaths of the population, conservatives, evangelicals, Republicans, others who are uh, maybe skeptical. We even, uh, interestingly, uh, have mobilized leaders you've never heard of but who have tremendous credibility in local communities in 16 states across the country that have lower vaccination rates. And that's been done on a completely bipartisan basis. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim Hansen. 
Advance the career of your colleagues by encouraging them to apply to become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org forward slash FIDSA. Yeah, I was going to ask what you thought the most effective strategies were to combat that across the country. And it seems to me that people on the ground and, and leaders like that, that, that you wouldn't see on the nightly news, but that are active in their communities would be the best way to, to attack that. And people like Carlos Del Rio gave us insights about this. It's doctor to patient. Mm-hmm. It's family member to family member. It's peer to peer. It's people who love and care about you or credible messengers and who have good backgrounds in science and information on their side. One of the most effective strategies, I think, has been actually the mobilization of entire sectors, an institutional approach. So when we saw from our parent survey, that 80% of parents wanted schools to be more active as vaccination sites and providing good information because they've done that historically, as you know. We worked with the White House and our network of school leaders across the country in urban and rural areas to promote schools as vaccination sites. We created COVID safe zones with businesses that were either requiring vaccination or regular testing. We reached out to the college sports leagues because millions of Americans are attending college football games every and professional football games every week and worked with them to get their leagues to set the example and their players and coaches to set the example and then set up pop vaccination clinics near games. But leadership really matters from sectors. And uh, we've drawn on that in a way that hopefully confronts and combats uh, misinformation and disinformation. Regarding your collaborative vaccine education campaign that you did with the Ad Council, I know you've done a great deal of research to determine how best to address questions and concerns about those vaccines in different populations. Is there anything that you've learned that we should hear about? Yeah, just a good reminder. And again, Carlos reinforced this from the very beginning, which how critical it is to actually listen to where people are in their COVID response journey. I'll give you an example. We We learned very early on in our survey of Black Americans that there was a lot of mistrust of the process of vaccine development, of government, uh, in part prompted by the historic trauma associated with the uh, public health services Tuskegee syphilis experiments conducted, I think, in the night from the 1930s to the early 1970s. So one strategy we deployed with the Ed Council, we contacted the descendants of the men involved in the syphilis study at Tuskegee to send the message that unlike their relatives, uh, people deserve to get legitimate answers to their questions and to understand how the process for development of vaccines occurred and to hear from credible sources about their safety and efficacy to boost confidence in the COVID-19 vaccines. And we know that had an impact. Another one was this example I touched on, which 80% of parents indicated they really wanted schools as vaccination sites. And they felt like schools had the interest of their children in mind. So we we mobilized the Council of the Great City Schools, which represents 77 urban school districts, superintendents association, 14,000 superintendents across the United States, and the Rural Schools Collaborative, and the White House to create schools as vaccination sites with information campaigns and clinics on site or nearby even student-led campaigns like Teens for Vaccines, which, you know, these peer-to-peer efforts have an impact. America's had such a long tradition of childhood vaccination in schools that why not build on, on that? And finally, I just have to note, 
COVID has devastated the American Indian Alaska native populations and they never get talked about like they should. And the, we surveyed them, partnered with the National Congress of American Indians. They have a high distrust of government grounded in historic, very difficult history with the government and a belief that vaccines make you sick. But the good news is that the American Indian community mobilized native speakers, relied on local healthcare workers, and had these innovative partnerships that were so effective. For example, the Lumai uh, Nation in Washington had such an effective campaign that the state and schools and local communities nearby that were not American Indian adopted them. And I'll note that uh, the Navajo Nation, which was probably the most devastated place in the country on COVID, now has one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. So we have a lot to learn from one another. What can professional societies like IDSA do to help the COVID Collaborative address these issues and misinformation? Well, you guys are awesome. You're already doing so much. And I, it's been thrilling to, to work with you so closely because you have so much credibility on the issue when you marshal science and evidence and medical professionals all across the country through your networks. People want clear facts. They want evidence. They want honesty about what we know and don't know. It all builds trust. And I think you're helping to combat misinformation by mobilizing your networks where we still have great challenges with webinars, events, podcasts that uh, get good information into the hands of more people. And as you were doing, you know, shoring up, I think this is really important. Carlos is, and I and Georges Benjamin and many of us have talked about how public health authorities are being undermined in this country. And your work in shoring up the decisions of the CDC and the FDA, such as boosters for all American adults, as you mentioned at the outset of this program, every little bit of that matters in this war against this pandemic. And uh, with Omicron uh, coming around the corner, it's going to be more important to have clear guidance from all levels of government, uh, public and private sector alike. Thanks, Bridge. That's a really short but incredibly impactful body of work you've put together with your collaborative that, that's been incredibly important in the whole process. Carlos, what are the, some of the most common myths you've been hearing from patients about COVID vaccines and treatments? Well, you know, Dan, what you find nowadays is that I, I see a lot of people where it's not really lack of information anymore, but it's really excessive misinformation that is making them not get vaccinated. And the most common things you hear are things like, they were, they were rushed, you know, they, they weren't tested for safety. They change your DNA. They can give you COVID. You know, they have severe side effects. They can make you infertile. And those things keep on coming up repeatedly and repeatedly. So I think what's really important is to listen what somebody has heard and then to try to demonstrate to them that that is misinformation. And sometimes it's very hard because, you know, they have this very firm belief. They heard it from somebody they trust. And even though it's misinformation, it came from somebody they trust. And therefore, you have the, the, the difficulty of trying to convince them that the information you're giving them is actually correct, but also that you, the person that they trusted is somebody that is giving them misinformation. So it really becomes a challenge because you really have to do this very complicated dance of, let me tell you the truth without necessarily discrediting the other person, simply saying the other person is also misinformed. And you know, the other person may not be somebody uh, mischievous that is doing this, maybe somebody that also got misinformation from somewhere. In approaching a patient like that that's vaccine hesitant, what's been the successful routes for you to get them to receive a vaccine and what's been most frustrating for you in the process? 
you know, I think the most successful is to is to find find where they are and try to move them forward and try to find what is the reasons for them to get vaccinated. At, at our hospital here at Grady, uh, we have put something at, at the entrance of the hospital that is called the, the no judgment zone. So you can go there and nobody's going to judge you. If you haven't been vaccinated, people are going to listen to you and they're going to try to answer your questions. So you need to not be judging people for not being vaccinated. I think we, you know, honestly made a mistake when we started saying, well, this is an epidemic of the unvaccinated, because, you know, to be frank, it's always been an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Before we had vaccines, it was only the unvaccinated that got COVID, right? So, I mean, we didn't really say much, but but by targeting people, by really stigmatizing people, you're not doing anybody a favor. So I think we need to understand why are people unvaccinated? I think during the COVID, uh, last COVID surge in Delta, it was useful to have somebody who's in the hospital who realizes how severe COVID is talk to their family and say, okay, it's time that you get vaccinated. And finally, a lot of people will do it for their families. I have this case that I really liked in which a lady found me in the market, a lady in her 60s who has chronic lung disease. And she asked me to talk to her kids who are in their 30s because she says, I want to be protected. I'm very concerned about my health. And their kids her kids did not want to get vaccinated because they had heard about, you know, infertility and affecting their, their, their gonads. And when I spoke to them and I said to them, do it for your mom, they found a reason to do it. So you need to find somebody, a reason why it's worth taking that sacrifice. It could be here for yourself or it could be for somebody you, 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 you love. But I think the most important thing is that we need to continue a really emphasizing that these vaccines were developed safely. They were developed following all the procedures. And at the end of the day, that we have an incredible system in place to monitor side effects. I mean, the way that we've been able to pick up myocarditis and, and thrombosis, the thrombotic thrombocytopenic syndrome and other rare conditions is because we have this fantastic surveillance system, VERSE, that allows us to pick up those really, really rare events that you couldn't pick up in the clinical trial because they don't, they don't occur in thousands of people. They occur after millions of doses have been administered. So how can we all become better discerners of truthful information regarding COVID? You know, I think we need to be able to, to talk simply, to talk not scientifically, but to talk to people. I, I remind myself frequently of the movie Philadelphia, when Denzel Washington said, explain it to me as if I was a five-year-old. You need to, to learn how to take data and how to take concepts and explain them to people in a very simple way, in ways they can understand it. And I, I like to use a lot of of similarities, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of ways to, to, to bring it home in ways that is simple for people to understand, you know, to make it, for example, I frequently tell people when they say to me, well, you know, things are safe now, we should be able to no longer wear a mask. I say, well, you know, that's almost like saying there haven't been any accidents in the freeway, so why are we using a seatbelt anymore since we don't need it? You need to make it in ways that people understand. You need to have similarities. You need to have a ways to, to make relations in which people understand, you know, sports analogies, all sorts of different things that, that the person is going to find that you make a connection with them. And, and at the same time, I think it's really important to get trusted members of the community to give the message. I've had throughout the pandemic the opportunity to work closely with, with Tyler Perry. And when the vaccines appeared in January, I said, Tyler, we got to get you vaccinated and we got to do it in public so people see it. And he said to me, you know, how do you know I, I want to be vaccinated? I have a lot of questions. And so I was assuming he was okay with the vaccine. And I said, fine, let me go. We'll answer your questions. And then after I answer your questions, we'll go ahead and see if you want to get vaccinated. But let's go ahead and, and film you, you know, asking questions. And I think you could be wealthy. You can be, you know, very important. And you can still have questions. So we also need to let people know 
that we, we should not assume that everybody is you know, dying to get vaccinated. And we need to understand why, what are the reasons? Yeah, I think that's an incredibly powerful technique. It's certainly time consuming, but it's definitely worth it. Something that's somewhat of a parallel of this is that we're beginning to see a decline in rates of vaccination for other childhood diseases mainly. Do you think we're entering a new era in medicine because of the effects of misinformation or? You know, I'm very concerned that, that the anti-vax movement that started some years ago is beginning to use this to actually push other initiatives. So we're seeing some legislators in many states saying, well, we know we shouldn't have vaccine mandates for children and we shouldn't have this and we shouldn't have that. I'm very concerned about that. Vaccines have saved millions of lives. Kids today don't have to worry about diseases like polio and they don't have to worry about many other diseases because we've been able to take care of them through vaccines. So the, the, the magic of vaccines, the incredible thing that vaccines have done to me is, is something that we should not let people forget. And I think we as an infectious disease specialist have a very important role in reminding people the importance of, of immunizations. It's just not, it goes beyond COVID and talking about vaccination, not only for children, but actually for adults. I mean, there are many, many vaccines that adults should be receiving that they're not. So talking vaccines should be one thing that we as an infectious disease doctors do regularly with our families, with our friends, with our patients. This is something you know a lot about, I know. Uh, how can physicians and other healthcare professionals best use social media to combat misinformation? Social media is incredibly powerful, and I think social media has had has the yin and the yang. There's a lot of misinformation in social media, but there's a lot of credible information in social media, and you can do it by amplifying credible information, by letting other people hear credible information, by, by retweeting what your network is hearing in credible information, by being careful uh, in, in blocking and counteracting misinformation. But more importantly, is to really make yourself uh, savvy on social media. So when your patients or your relatives or a friend sends you a tweet or something posted on Facebook said, hey, what do you think about this? You need to be able to tell them why that is a misinformation and what kinds of things they need to do to prevent misinformation from entering their, their system and their, their network. Yeah, I agree. It's a very powerful uh, medium to use, but you really have to be careful about how you use it and, and when. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. McQuillan, Dr. Del Rio, and Mr. Bridgeland for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.